you know, if we're thinking about creativity and innovation, which, to be honest, we're in a world that it demands more and more innovation of us all of the time, then mood is massively important. If you're starting a brainstorming session, give the treats at the beginning, not at the end. You know, uh, play, you know, play icebreaker things at the beginning to get people laughing, get that energy going. So in that micro moments, it's very, very important. But if you're building an organisation, don't think that you know, team building and team happiness is a nice to have. This is an essential to have. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimising business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors and examples from some of my work over the last few years coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Fuck Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today has been glorious in Wiltshire. In fact, I normally think about the first barbecue of the year being in March, and here we are, it's the 26th of February, and we've been eating wood-fire pizza al fresco just outside the management lab in Wiltshire. And so here I am thinking back to the summit which we held in September 2020, in that gap that we had between two lockdowns when the weather was fantastic, 27 degrees. And we had 50 clients on the farm and eight amazing speakers, six of whom did fantastic workshops. One of the speakers was Nick Marks. And this is, this is sort of 20 minutes of Nick Marks filling us in on why he started Friday Pulse, what his journey is about, and... And what does happiness at work mean? And you can go over and see the see his slides uh, if you feel the need on on the YouTube channel. But I think you'll get the gist of it just by listening to uh, Nick's dulcet tones. One of the things that sticks in my mind still, and was the data that he shared about about women and work and. And people listed the things that they did every day and they put them in reverse order. And the second to last one was work. And the one the one that people hated more than work was commute. And as this has been a sort of a 12 months of no commute for most people, it's just interesting to think, no wonder many people feel happier that they're not commuting. Anyway, a fantastic and informative talk from Nick. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, yeah, I want to talk to you about why happiness is a serious business and how feelings are data. And uh, uh, here is Daniel Kahneman. And actually, he is, in some ways, very intrinsically linked into uh, uh, how, I, how I, I measure stuff. So even though I did have an argument... Basically, the, the argument happened that I was in a big international meeting about international happiness. I used to work for the 
while advising the Blair and the Cameron governments on how they measured well-being. And I was asked to this big meeting, and they measure happiness internationally in different ways. And uh, Kahneman put up some data, which is called a Cantrell ladder of life, which is if you consider your life overall, you're the bottom of this ladder, this top. And he called it happiness, and I objected to that because it's sort of more about status and standard of living. And when you look at these different variables, they work differently. Anyway, uh, I said to him, I don't think that's happiness. And he looked at me with his steely eyes. This is a Nobel Prize winner, and he goes, who owns the word happiness, Nick? And I thought, what the fuck is that? And then <laughs> Lord, Lord Richard Layard, who is a sort of guru of happiness and economics, said, affect owns happiness, i.e. emotion owns happiness. And so we should have emotional measures of happiness. And so in some ways, it was, it was a very funny argument. And I was the upstart then. So anyway, but I want to talk about a paper I read in 2004, which was by Daniel Kahneman. And it was, it was the first time that data in this area really, really came alive for me. I looked at lots of data on life satisfaction, all sorts of things at that stage. And his data was about yesterday. And it was a, a methodology called day reconstruction methodology. And he asked people, it happened, his first survey was 2,000 working women. Uh, and that was how he devised the methodology. But this has been done in population samples everywhere. And he asked them to say, what activities did they do yesterday? And they did things, well, they all worked. So it's uh, the number, amount of time. And nearly seven hours, all of them worked because they were working women. He was asking them on a work day. But then he had all the other things. And right at the bottom there, you can see what they delicately called intimate relationships. And 11% uh, of them had it for about 12 minutes. Um, so he ranked them all in that order. Um, but then he asked them another thing, which was like, did they enjoy? How much did they enjoy these activities? So we see this rank order of time. And then we asked people how much they enjoyed them. And the list almost completely reverses, you know. Not surprisingly, intimate relations came top. But if you look right down the bottom, work. And the only thing below it is commuting to and from work. And if you think about how much time we spent at work, I found this sort of desperately sad for the human condition. You know, We spend a lot of time at work, and it's the least enjoyable activity. Now, it's not to say that we think of work as our most uh, important uh, source of happiness in our life, but it seemed to me it was an opportunity. Now, I was off in my career then, and I was doing stuff about how governments measure stuff, and I, I didn't particularly see how this related, but it was a paper that really made me um, think that sometime in life I might want to work on work. And by 2010, I did a TED Talk, and I did a TED Talk on all my work on um, governments and stuff like that. And um, apart from being the most scary thing in the world, where you've got a live shot 18-minute video that's going to define your career in one go, and you've got no second takes, um, it was a good experience apart from that. Um, anyway, it gave me an opportunity to go, okay, I've done this work in policy for 10, 12 years. Uh, maybe I'll do something different now. And um, so I decided, I had three choices really, um, which were to do stuff in schools, to do stuff with cities, or to do stuff with work. And, and I chose work. And partly that Kahneman paper was about it. And, um, and I really want to talk about how feelings are data and how I think of them as data and how they're especially valuable. Probably one thing I need to say just in sort of context is that I am a statistician by trade, so it's quite difficult following a comedian and a totally inspirational story, and I'm going to talk numbers. But, um, but the other thing is my mother was a family therapist, and I trained as a therapist when I was young. And in therapy, we often talk about the therapist's feelings are data, in a sense that when we listen to somebody and we start feeling something ourselves, we're looking about what the transference and the counter-transference is. And I was very struck, really, that... I think feelings are data, feelings are information for us. And so can we create data around feelings that are useful for us in order to make better decisions? And that's really what this talk is about. So, but firstly, before I go to that, uh, what are feelings for? We are 
not Dr. Spock. Well, Spock is half human, half not, but we're not psychopaths. We're not aliens who are purely rational. We are obviously emotional beings. Uh, and in, in many ways, emotions must have evolved for a certain purpose. And in fact, the current thinking in neuroscience is that, or I, th I think it's proof, is that emotions came way before the, uh, thoughts did. You know, we can actually see beings before they have neuro neurological uh, systems actually having a stimulus response mechanism, which is effectively like a feeling for what's going on. And there's a guy called Antonio Damasio who wrote a very good book called The Strange Order of Things. And he says that feelings help us do three things, which is that they help us monitor our environments. So the definition of life in a single cell organism is that you've got an inside of the cell and you've got an outside of the cell. And that membrane is critical. So actually to sit in an environment, we need to actually be transferring information about what's going outside, what's inside, how do we maintain the structure of the inside. Now, we're much more complicated beings than that, but we've obviously got some sort of uh, uh, membrane around us, and we're always interacting with environments. And our feelings will give us information about that environment. At its simplest level, we meet somebody new here today, and we have an instant friend or foe signal. We have an instant like-dislike signal. Do we like somebody, do we don't? It doesn't always necessarily prove to be correct, but we have an instant signal about it. And going on for us all the time is, should I approach this, should I avoid this? And that is a very, very thing. We often feel something way before we have the cognition to understand it. So that comes. It also, our feelings motivate us, that actually they're what drives us to behave. Uh, feelings are very bodily. We experience them in the body, and that's the reason is that our muscles are firing, basically helping us to act in the world. So um, I'll go into a bit more. And then they help us adjust our behavior. So we're moving along, and they're helping us adjust as we're going along. And they're really doing those three things. And I think that numbers can particularly help with number one. Not so good for number two, can help with number three. And I'll explain why. So the monitoring <laughs> steps, thank you, I'll be able to get down. Is I'm trying to basically think whether we can pick up a good, bad signal. And I'm a statistician. I love data. I love decimal points. I love all sorts of stuff. I love deep data. But when I first started out in this field of doing stuff about work, I used to do quite long surveys, and I just found everyone got paralyzed by having too much data. So I really started to look at the data. And basically, what you find in every data set is uh, it's called an eigenvalue, but basically, it's the, it's the structure of the data. In the middle of it is a big, good, bad signal. Is work going well? Is it not? And so I try and capture that with one question rather than 40 or 80 or 120. Try and capture that piece of information. Is it going well or not? Very quickly and easily. So um, if we uh, look at this, we can think of happiness as a good, bad signal. Is it, is it bad? Is it good? Uh, and we can put numbers on that. We can say, give me a one for this, give me a five for this. And suddenly we've translated a feeling into a number. Okay? Um, I don't want to say this captures all of happiness or all of our emotional experiences, but it captures that good-bad signal really well. And you can start creating data like that. So we've been asking people right through COVID how they've been feeling at work, and this is across all of our clients. And you can basically, I don't know if there's a light here, but you can see what's going on here, which is that everyone was trundling along. It's a typical peak at Christmas. People always feel a bit happy at Christmas. Actually, our samples uh, uh, response rate goes down, so it's, you know, people are only answering then. And then we go through to March, and we had that crash in that week beginning um, March the 12th or 18th or whatever it was. Uh, this is across the US and the UK. We have, because teams are resilient, we want to be resilient, we want to get back together again, we have this huge driving up, and we have this slow rise back to where we are. Now, two things to say about that. One is that's a natural process. Humans, we do want to be resilient, we want to keep going. 
Also, you have to think that uh, lots of people dropped out of our data sets. We had you know, four or five clients go bust you know, or stop, stop answering. Uh, people were furloughed, they weren't answering. And our clients are seeing this data every week. So they are working with this data every week and they are trying to improve their situation. So my hypothesis would be the general population is much worse than this, is what I would say. But you can see the data, it's moving along, there's randomness in it as you would expect. Um, and often when we see a trough, you know, it's a couple of clients having a bad week you know, across our set or something like that. But you know, basically that's how it goes. And by asking that one question, you get a very interesting shaped data. And if you can imagine having that for every team in your organization, uh, you know, each teams will be having different setbacks. You know, we don't get a global setback very often. I mean, I've never seen that in a data set. I don't suppose I will again. Um, in fact, I hope I don't. Um, but you know, but uh, we see that 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 pattern in our clients quite regularly. So, um, so there's the good bad signal, which is really really useful data. But happiness and emotions really are a motivational thing, as I said. So it's not only monitoring; it's mot motivating. And the uh, psychologists talk about positive and negative emotions. So, and they also sometimes talk about something called primary emotions, which is a bit like primary colors, and they talk about anger, fear, uh, sadness, happiness. Have you ever seen Inside Out as the film, kid's film that's basically taking that idea and making it into a cartoon? And, and basically, what, uh, what those are doing, what anger and fear are doing is part of the fight flight, flight mechanism, that when we're angry, someone's violated the norm, and we want to stop them uh, violating again, so it gets us sort of into hot energy, uh, we're basically readying to fight, yeah? Whether we don't tend to do that physically as much as our ancestors did, uh, luckily. We use other ways of expressing our anger. Um, you know, um, statistics is a really good way for me to express my anger with the world. You know, I collect the data, make my case, put it forward coldly. Uh, fear is about us avoiding a threat. Uh, sadness is about a loss. Uh, and these are all highly functional. I don't want you to think negative emotions are dysfunctional. They're not negative in the sense that they, they're actually there to protect us and to, and to help us do. Uh, helps do. But happiness has tended to be thought of as a signal of good functioning. When we're happy, carry on. It's sort of, you know, you know, if happy, carry on. Instead of keep calm, carry on. But actually, it's much, much richer than that. And there's an all sorts of um, different ways that different uh, energies are released with the array of positive emotions that we have. And I think sometimes team leaders, senior leaders, are going to be like, you know, do I want my teams to be happy? I mean, surely if they're happy, they're not really working, are they? They're sort of playing. They're sort of doing that. And there is a form of happiness where cognitive functioning goes down when people are sort of mucking around. You know, if you're trying to bond with other people, you're not expressing your most intelligent self because you're trying to fit in. So we have to think about what the different forms of positive emotions that we're interested in. And um, um, oh, so that was a broad point to say that the, the negative ones to help us avoid and the positive ones to approach. So Happiness is a gateway, and when I ask people what happiness is, some people will tell me it's contentment, and some people will say it's joy. Well, those are two very different things, contentment and joy. You know, one's very high energy, one's very reflective low energy. And effectively what they're doing is they're, they're, we're expressing a whole lot of positive emotions. So things like amusement are, uh, and gratitude and enjoyment are about bonding and connecting with other people. That's where cognitive functioning is slightly lower as a rule. Not always, but as a rule, as a rule it is. Um, whereas curiosity is really intellectually engaged and exploring. Uh, interest is intellectually engaged and focusing. Yeah? And then we have emotions like joy, awe, wonder, inspiration. Basically, they, they help us reach for bigger goals, and we want that in life. And so all of these emotions, uh, contentment, by the way, is reflection, reflecting on what's going well. All of these emotions in your teams are highly, highly functional, but you want people to be emotionally agile and be able to move towards them. So 
we've lost that very simple good-bad signal. And so in this space, I think it's much more difficult to measure. Uh, and so I less and less try to measure, because if I asked you, you know, how often did you feel curious last week, you sort of couldn't really give me an answer. If you asked me how often you, you felt engaged, you probably wouldn't be able to answer. You know, it's a very loose subject engagement. How meaningful your work is, it's hard to give me a number. Where it's easy to say, was I happy, was I not? It's easier to, because of the, the very deep good-bad signal we've got within us. So when we work in this space, we tend to work more qualitatively with text rather than with uh, numbers, so that it sort of helps uh, take the narrative of it in some ways. Um, I haven't got a number on here, by the way. Um, uh, positivity, that positivity and the feeling of, uh, of, of feeling good uh, leads to a lot of success and innovation. And there's data to show that once you've got data, you can start correlating these variables and start looking at it. And so, you know, what I can tell you is that, um, uh, is that it improves retention, improves productivity, and it improves creativity. So retention... Um, uh, sorry, two slides. Oh, there we go. Um, when people are unhappy, they're more likely to leave. I mean, it's not, I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize for this graph, okay? <laughs> uh, but it is there. In the, and basically, this is a very quick uh, response, which is that we're measuring the experience of people in the first three months, and we're comparing it to have they stayed in the organisation or left in the next three, the next quarter. So actually, we only actually measure it for the first two months. We leave a month's gap. And then we, let, uh, then we have a look. And you can see, basically, the people who are unhappy are more likely to leave. So if you're worried about retention, then happiness is really, really important. Um, uh, and then um, we can look at happiness and success. This is purely financial success. It's a huge study uh, by a guy called Jim Harter, who's the chief scientist at Gallup and has got extraordinary data. Um, he's measuring positive experiences of work. It's not quite happiness. I'm slightly falling into my own trap at Kahneman there. But anyway, um, and financial success, it's a team-based level measure, he measured them at time one, and then six to 12 months later. And you're basically looking for not statistical proof of causality, because it's not statistical proof of causality, but as close as you can get to, because you're looking into temporal data. Okay, so uh, there's often this thing about correlation doesn't mean causation, uh, and we have correlation coefficients here, but with the way that it's structured, it's as close as you can get to that without blind controls. And what they found was, in looking for, does success lead to happiness? or does happiness lead to success? And our orthodox model is that success leads to happiness. If you work hard, you will be happy, yeah? If you're good, uh, you know, if you work hard, you can be happy at the weekend. If you work hard, you can be happy when you retire. If you're a good Christian, you can be happy in heaven afterwards, whatever it is. We tend to push happiness into the future about our behaviors. Was that true? And the answer is, yeah, there's a correlation coefficient there. Definitely true that success does lead to more positive feelings. But the other way round was twice as strong. So effectively, we've got, we've got virtuous cycles going on here, but we've got twice the correlation coefficient here. Now, we all want to drive success in our businesses, so you've got no problem with the bottom one. You know, that if, you, you know, if you're successful, people are going to feel happier. But it's an interesting business opportunity to think much more about team-based happiness, because if you create happy, psychological, safe, you know, Amy Emerson would call it, you take teams that are highly functional in a sense of emotionally functional, uh, relationally functional, you're more likely to drive success. It's obviously not the only thing going on there. You know, you can have happy, unproductive teams. It exists. You know, they're going to go out of business. But what I would say is if you've got unhappy, successful teams, they will break up. Uh, they, will not, they will not last as teams if they're unhappy. You want them both. You want these things to go to death. So in this way, this is data which is complementary to your business data. It's not to replace it anyway. Um, uh, 
creativity is very hard to measure. Uh, psychologists tend to do things like play games with people in order to discover creativity. This is a very famous one. Some of you may have seen it. It's called the Dunker Candle Experiment. It's a lateral thinking problem where you're given uh, some matches, a box of tacks, drawing pins, and a candle, and you're asked to put the candle, uh, attach the candle to the wall in such a way as that the wax doesn't drip when you light it. And you kind of have to think of that, and you have to think of a lateral solution. And basically, some people solve it, some don't. It's very easy when you know how. The tacks come in a box. You empty the box, you attach the box to the wall, put the candle in the box, and you've solved it, yeah? But it's sort of one of those silly things when you know it, it's easy. And what they did was they then took the group, groups of people, this set of expert, uh, uh, researchers, and they, they took a, a control group and they did nothing to you and just gave it to you. To you guys, uh, they showed pictures of cats playing, babies gurgling, and you're in a nice mood. To you, you know, they had cats being dissected or babies screaming, and you're in an agitated bad mood. Okay, so manipulate your mood, do the experiment. And what do they find? Well, the, the control group solved it 13% of the time in five minutes. The negative group solved it 20% of the time. So more than the neutral group. Emotions are energy. You're agitated, you're there, you're, you're engaged in some ways uh, that perhaps the people who were just bored weren't. Yeah? The positive group, 75% of the time. And so, you know, if we're thinking about creativity and innovation, which, to be honest, we're in a world that it demands more and more innovation of us all of the time, then mood is massively important. If you're starting a brainstorming session, give the treats at the beginning, not at the end. You know, uh, play, you know, play icebreaker things at the beginning to get people laughing, get that energy going. So in that micro moment, it's very, very important. But if you're building an organisation... Don't think that you know, team building and team happiness is a nice to have. This is an essential to have for any roles that require, that aren't exceptionally rote. You know, if you're very rote, this is going to have less of an impact. You know, if we're still going to have an impact, still going to improve retention, uh, but it's not going to have as massive impact. Innovation, it's a massive effect. Uh, and um, so then it becomes like, okay, that's great. How do we do that? How do we do it? I'm gonna, and I'm going to run a workshop where I'm going to talk more about how rather than why you do it but basically it's based on our research over the last uh, eight ten years we've done a lot of surveys uh, we come up with these basically five ways to build a, a, a positive uh, culture team by team in your organization and uh, you know they're not going to come totally as rocket science but you know connect relationships um, with a with a covid handshake um, they're um, you know um, are, are the cornerstones of everything uh, but the next one is treating people fairly. Uh, it's always easier to be fair to people you like than people you don't like. Uh, but unless you like them a lot, they're very good friends, then you can be harsh on them. But basically treating everyone in your team fairly, uh, respecting them, giving them opportunities. Um, uh, empower them. Uh, in, in contrast to the speaker this morning about saying, don't do any autonomy. Uh, uh, in a way, uh, you're talking about structuring the whole, the whole system, but you still need to give people ways to shape their work. I'm sure that even those salespeople on their calls are using innovative ways in the micro moments that they talk, which will be using their autonomy to shape the conversation. So uh, it can be micro as well as macro, but you know, trusting, delegating are good for, at least for happiness at work. Um, uh, challenge, which is stretch, uh, uh, learning uh, um, is really good. And finally, inspire, which is meaning, purpose. So in a way, the last three are Daniel Pink, uh, you know, which is um, autonomy, 
mastery and purpose. Um, Americans tend to forget the social ones. Uh, 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 they tend to think very individually. It's a, it's a gross generalization, but fairly true. Um, and so uh, these ones are here. So, um, so those are the five sort of things that you can do. And then um, finally, just going to just talk a tiny bit about structure, which is that this is just something to, to warn you about, which is that uh, we tend to find that larger organizations are less happy than smaller ones. So as you go on a growth path, I think this is going to become more, it becomes more of a challenge to keep, uh, you know, I think a lot of you who maybe started with a small organization, uh, you know, that there's some sort of nostalgia to how the firm was when it was small. As you grow, it's harder. And I think this is a natural journey you're on. It's more difficult. Uh, scaling becomes problems. Um, and that's the, how that is. But if you look at each of those variables, we have variables for connect, be fair, empower, challenge. The one that's dropping most is empower which is as people get in larger systems, they feel more and more disempowered in those systems. And so in some ways, it's how you make smallness and the bigness. Uh, you know, how, how do you do that? Uh, I think it's something about structure. We're actually in an icosahedron here. In fact, it's not quite an icosahedron. It's a geodesic dome. It's, this is an alternative structure for organizations, by the way, this roofway, this lattice of it. You know, instead of having a hierarchy, you have interconnected teams. So you can think of the center of it as being a team and the spokes between it between being people and if a person's in two teams, then you get amazing information flowing around the organization. So let's say you've got six teams and people sit in two teams. Everything flows around the organization really well. So the people that build organizations based on effectively the structure in order to have more dynamic decision making. Uh, holacracy is one interest. Are you going to touch on holacracy? No? No. But holacracy is one interesting one where they try and flatten it totally. I'm quite into these more ones which have a little bit of depth to them so that we do need some hierarchy in the systems. But... Um, how you structure stuff, I think, is critically important. Um, and I imagine if we had more nuanced data, we'd find that too. Um, so um, this is just a final one, which is that there's some research showing that organizations with great cultures do better on the stock market. So if you're thinking about how you grow your business at share value, I think this is reassuring data. So the red line is the S&P 500. And this line is uh, the ones that are in the best place to work, great place to work list uh, in the US which isn't even the best measure of culture that there is, but there's massively extra returns. It's about 2 to 3% per year, extra returns. So I think it even will translate into that if it's executed well. So as you innovate with products and services, uh, as we innovate, as we cope with COVID, I think really don't forget team culture. It is critically important. Uh, and I think that you can measure it if you do it in a, in a way. And we've got some of our clients in here. We Excelsior, T-Tech are here maybe someone else, and, uh, and I think that most of them, you can talk to them, but they find the data really useful in helping them think about how their teams uh, are doing. So uh, we are free for three months. This is my sales pitch. <laughs> uh, you, you can come and try us for three months because basically it's such new data, we don't expect people to understand it straight away. So work with us for three months and then see whether you want to go on. Um, feelings are data. Thank you.